0: My paper is entitled Passion and the Life of Virtue, a broad topic, but I am going to take a particular focus on progression from vice to virtue, from the rule of passion to the rule of reason. To achieve this end, the first part of my talk will address some underlying principles, including the connection of the virtues, the essence of the sensitive appetite and the passions, the moral content of the passions, with reference to the nature of the governance of the intellect and the will, And then with these in place, part two will address the progression from virtue to vice, illustrating Thomas Aquinas' fourfold distinction on temperance, intemperance, continence, and incontinence, by means of a simple example, the pub. As to sources, numerous works by Thomas Aquinas touch on the topic, but I will primarily be referencing his commentary on the Nicomachean Ethics, De Veritate, and the Summa Theologiae. I would like to begin with a quotation from G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy. Written over 100 years ago, he masterfully identified the roots of moral decay during religious decline. Quote, when a religious scheme is shattered, not merely the vices are let loose. The vices are indeed let loose and they wander and do damage, but the virtues are also let loose and the virtues wander more wildly, and the virtues do more terrible damage. The modern world is full of old Christian virtues gone mad." Quote. One expects what vices to wander and do damage, but how do we understand virtues gone mad? Couched within Chesterton's statement is an ancient principle which holds that real virtues are connected According to this principle, the truly just ruler not only possesses justice, but must also have courage. The courageous soldier must be prudent to know when to do battle and when to flee. The truly prudent parent is temperate, just, and courageous, enabling him or her to do the right thing in the right way at the right time. Thomas dedicates an entire question of the Summa Theologiae to the question of the connection of the virtues. Here he references Aristotle and Cicero, as well as the scriptures Gregory the Great, Augustine, all of whom agree that to possess one virtue without the other means that the virtue possessed is either of no account whatever or very imperfect, while any person who has a true virtue must have several. By way of emphasis, Thomas states that a virtue cannot be perfect as a virtue if isolated from the others. Thus, when religion is overshadowed and society loses reference to God, all the virtues are detached, disconnected from one another, leaving little hope that man will reach his true end. In such situations, many still speak of virtue, but it is merely a mad facsimile making it difficult to distinguish virtue from vice. History is filled with examples. Consider the French revolutionaries, who not only enshrined the goddess of reason on the altar of Notre Dame during the Fête de la Raison, but hailed the virtues of liberté, égalité, fraternité as justification for rebellion, anarchy, and regicide. In our own day, debates on virtue and vice swirl around such terms as justice and injustice, fairness and inequality, respect, bigotry, love, hatred. Relativism has rendered clarity asunder, and all virtues and vices now bow before the new queen of virtues, tolerance. And while philosophers and theologians argue over the merits and demerits of tolerance as a virtue, the masses, have solidly engrafted it onto the root onto the tree of relativism with banners declaring you will not offend me and i will not offend you now how do passions fit into this picture if virtues perfect the powers of the soul then a lack of connection a scattering of virtue implies that certain certain powers will lack certain virtues a reality that's particularly apparent in the context of the sense appetite. A simple example suffices. A father who frequently loses his temper may know that it is not good to yell at his wife or to beat his children. Knowing the pain he causes, he may prudently determine and will not to do it again. But prudence alone is insufficient for virtue. His prudent decision to treat his family justly demands something more. To accomplish this good act, he must be well disposed with regards to the end, and this depends on rectitude of his appetite, not just the rational appetite, the will, but also the sense appetite. Without the virtues of meekness, gentleness, though the father determines the rational good and wills to choose it, Lack of rectitude in the sensible appetite, the seat of the passion of anger, means that the next time he is irritated, passion will most likely overwhelm his good intentions and he will lose his temper just as he has done in the past. Now the movement of the sense appetite is called the passio. Passio <clears throat> passion, which comes from the Greek pathe and the Latin pati, meaning to endure, to undergo to experience. This emphasizes something of a receptive element. However, we have to be careful to avoid thinking that the sense appetite is merely passive. Since a power is named for its act, the sense appetite is called, excuse me, the sense appetite is called such because once the senses apprehend their object, the corresponding appetite moves towards the object, if it is good, a lovely pint of beer, or away from an evil object, the bear trying to attack me. It is therefore called the moved mover. I don't have time to go fully into the contemporary debates surrounding and distinguishing passion, affection, feeling, and emotion, but I would like to make three comments to help clarify Thomas's understanding of passion. Number one, Thomas does not use the term emotion. He does agree, however, that the passions can be called affections. This is because the affections manifestly belong to the appetitive part of the soul, so too the passions. So he identifies those two in a way. Number two, Thomas sets aside feeling, sensus. In his De Veritate, he distinguishes sadness from pain. Now, pain here he takes in a strict sense as a feeling belonging properly to the body. And it is therefore not a passion because it involves nothing on the part of the soul beyond mere apprehension. The soul apprehends when the body feels pain, something affected by the sense of touch, as when I recently sprained my ankle. As Augustine says, pain is more commonly said of bodies. Sadness, on the other hand, is a psychical passion cyclical here not cycle as in bicycle or cyclical but as in psyche a cyclic psychical passion which begins with the apprehension of a source of harm and ends in an operation of the appetite and even further thomas says in an alteration of the body now though these are distinct they are not unrelated sadness can cause my heart to feel pain as if it will break physical pain can cause sadness. Third point, Thomas distinguishes passion and its subject in the appetite. He says, in a general sense, passio can be applied to any receptive act, and as such can be attributed to any part of the soul and every part of the soul. But in the proper sense, passio is defined as a transformation, a loss of a contrary, This psychical passion is a movement of the non-rational soul due to the apprehension of good or evil. So he says, therefore, it is attributed to the body and properly found only in the sense appetite. However, since the human being is hylomorphic, body and soul, it pertains to the soul indirectly. Now, historically, these movements of the sense appetite, the passions, have been at the heart of passionate arguments, pun intended, most notably in discussions of happiness and virtue. The Epicureans sought happiness in the life of pleasure, whereas the Stoics believed happiness lay in man's nobility, in his ability to rationally choose those things which accord with human nature. So Cicero would define passion as a perturbation a pathos, which is a, a, excuse me, a commotion of the mind repugnant to reason and against nature. If passions are contrary to nature, then the noble Stoic stage must expel them. But even among spiritual writers, including Bernard of Clairvaux, we hear of this taming of the wild beast within. And the renowned moral, moral theologian and Thomist, Surveys Pincares compares the passions to a menagerie, to such animals as the proud domineering lion, the scared rabbit, the envious serpent, the mocking monkey, the bragging rooster, the brutal rhinoceros, or even the insipid jellyfish. Now, like all analogies, the menagerie helps on one level, but limps on the other. For though both animals and humans possess a sensitive appetite, a sensitive soul, The irrational menagerie in man belongs to a rational being. Human sentient powers are non-rational, but here non-rational does not imply against reason. Rather, it means without reason. In other words, the sentient soul in man is not a non-rational soul, but is rather both a sensitive and rational soul. This is what C.S. Lewis meant when he wrote that in themselves passions do not even rise to the dignity of error. As natural movements of the sensitive appetite, responding to sense data, which can come from the imagination, from the memory, from sight, from touch, from any of the senses, passions are morally neutral in themselves. But belonging to the rational nature, they do not remain neutral. Rather, they are properly subject to the command of the reason and of the will, and they are thus morally good or evil by participation. Unlike their counterparts in animals, human passions are designed to be governed by reason. But what is the nature of this governance? Aristotle held that the rational soul does not govern different powers of the body in a univocal manner. To explain he applied the analogy of civil rule. The rational soul governs the physical body with a despotic rule, such that if I decide to move my finger, its nature is like that of a slave. It cannot resist. It doesn't say, I'm going to go the other direction. It moves where I want it to move. Just as the athlete who trains, even in pain, um, with aches and pains, he still pushes his muscles so that they can more easily respond to the command of the will. But the soul cannot govern the sensitive appetite in the same way. Why? Because the appetite has something of its own. By virtue whereof, it can resist the commands of reason. Reason governs the sense appetite not as a tyrant and slave, but rather with the political rule of a wise ruler to a free citizen. The prudent ruler guides the free citizen, knowing that he or she has the power to accept or reject counsel. The strong city-state is composed not only of virtuous rulers, but of virtuous rulers and virtuous citizens, just as a virtuous man and woman, man or woman, has virtue in both the irrational and in the rational powers, in the sensitive powers and in the rational powers." To illustrate, I can return to the menagerie analogy. Human reason is similar to the lion trainer, whose skill lies not in brute force, anger, or loud cries. Anyone can yell and wave a stick and make a wild animal cower. The expert trainer has a higher, more difficult goal. He seeks not only to restrain the animal's power, but to guide it so that the animal will perform a specific action at the proper time. The power of this trainer lies in harnessing the animal's natural strength to accomplish great deeds. The trainer is helpless without the power of the animal. So too is man without the dynamic power of the passions. Now here again the analogy limps due to moral determination of human action. A determination which is complicated by the pivotal role played by pleasure, by pleasure and sorrow Aristotle taught and Thomas concurred that if virtues are about actions and passions, and if every action and passion is followed by pleasure and sorrow, then in this way, virtue is about pleasures and sorrows. Aristotle was so convinced about the connection between pleasure and sorrow and right or wrong human conduct that he declared that the whole concern of both morality and and political science must be with pleasures and pains since the man who treats them rightly will be good and the one who treats them wrongly will be bad. The problem, we are not impartial judges of pleasure. We often choose sensible pleasure over the rational good. Now, despite this danger, this pleasure-sorrow principle highlights the necessity of passion for virtuous action. If a rational being possesses sensitive powers, and one could have virtue in these powers without passion, you would be depriving the power of its proper act, and this is impossible. Rather, we hold that virtues like courage and patience, which are of the sensitive appetite, necessarily pertain to passion— But even the moral virtues which do not properly involve passion, such as justice, religion, truth, may actually result in passion. Doesn't the just man rejoice in his just deeds? Or the courageous soldier find joy in deeds of courage? Since the lower powers follow the movement of the higher, good acts of the rational powers overflow into the sensitive appetite. The implication is that joy is a natural effect of any act of virtue. Any agreeable operation, any good act, causes pleasure, especially spiritual pleasure. But in the same way, moderate sorrow can be used for avoiding evil. Thomas even considered sorrow to be the mark of a well-conditioned mind according to the present state of life, whereby we will experience evil. This hylomorphic account of virtue involving both the rational, rational and sensible powers is properly human. First, because the human person is virtuous, not in spite of passion, but because of passion. Secondly, because it acknowledges the doctrine of original sin. Though Adam and Eve were created in original justice, whereby reason held perfect hold over the lower powers of the soul, the loss of original justice without destroying nature left all human powers destitute of their proper order. After original sin, though the intellect still sought the truth, it was darkened. The will still sought the good, but it was weakened as to its choice of particular goods, and the passions no longer followed the guidance of the intellect and will. <clears throat> Thomas's approach avoids postmodern anthropological theories which err by either overemphasizing the spiritual or overemphasizing the material. Both of these strands absolutize a partial truth, which is, and they are unable to account for the other strand's central thought and central insight. Now, with those foundations, I move to part two, and the question of how does the human person mature and integrate human passion to achieve perfect self-mastery, virtue? This human excellence can be exemplified by the temperate person who abstains from bodily pleasure and enjoys the very fact of doing so, as opposed to the intemperate person who finds such acts irksome or the brave man who faces dangers gladly, or at least without distress, in contrast to the coward who experiences fear and great distress in the face of danger. Growth in virtue is not a question of either or. It is not that I either possess virtue perfectly or I have nothing of virtue. Rather, it's a process. Thomas defines it as having a beginning, A middle and an end. He compares these stages of growth and virtue to natural growth of a human being from infancy to childhood where one begins to use speech and to reason to puberty when he begins to acquire the power of generation and so on until he arrives at adulthood. Now, this growth can be applied to both the acquired and infused virtues, but I am going to specifically focus on acquired virtue, human virtue directed and defined according to human reason, that which is caused by human acts. Thomas borrows a fourfold distinction, which I already noted, of virtue, vice, continence, incontinence from the Nicomachean Ethics where after having defined virtue and categorizing the cardinal virtues and all the related virtues, Aristotle dedicates an entire chapter to the discussion of continence and incontinence. Now here he identifies six categories or stages related to human self-mastery or its lack. Those that lack include vice, incontinence, lack of self-mastery, and brutishness. On the other side, three levels of self-mastery include virtue, continence, imperfect self-mastery, and what he calls godlike self-mastery. I want to immediately set aside the two extremes, which by their very nature and by their very definition are rare among men. Brutishness, on the one hand, is more common to animals. Thomas will deal with it when he deals with clemency. The opposite extreme is perfect self mastery, which Aristotle attributed to the gods. Thomas will classify it as the infused virtue. Thomas, though, will even add another level, a still higher level of virtue, the exemplar virtues which belong to God Himself and pre exist in God just as the type of, of all things pre exist in Him. But setting those aside, we are left with the four main stages virtue, opposed to vice, temperance, intemperance, continence opposed to incontinence. Now, one other little aside. Aristotle will argue that continence and incontinence can be exercised about anything, um, whether it's physical pleasure, anger, greed, ambition, etc. Thomas treats them in a more limited manner, under the virtue of temperance, properly pertaining to moderation of our desires for simple sense pleasure. He does allow, however, that they can be applied relatively to these other, um, these other objects. The easiest way to elucidate these four stages is by way of example, which what I presume to be a common scenario here in Oxford. Four friends at a local pub on a Wednesday night with beer flowing. All have papers to write, exams to prepare, and lectures early the next morning. For our purposes, I will assume that each person has had two or three pints according to their personal rational limit. Each has reached their personal rational limit, whatever it is. For me, it's half of one. For ease, I will identify the four friends according to their level of virtue or vice. So I will identify them as temperance, continence, incontinence, and intemperance. Now, here again, I want to begin with the next furthest extremes, which is temperance and intemperance. First, there is intemperance, who, having neither virtue nor any intention of controlling her desire for ale, orders another round. In the context of the stages of virtue, Thomas identifies intemperance with childishness, since both the child and the intemperate man or woman are governed by passion. Both, he says, desire something disgraceful, contrary to reason. Both are self-willed and become stubborn when they don't get their way. And both cannot restrain themselves, but must be restrained by another. As to the function of reason, the intellect in intemperance, Thomas calls it habitual. And he compares it to a chronic disease. Since Intemperance has no right estimate of the end, of what the good end is. Intemperance is not moved by vehement desire, but worse, intemperance pursues irrational pleasure with calm, with slight desire. Opposite intemperance sits temperance, who thinking of the paper she must finish and the early classes in the morning reasons that she has had her limit. Her will concurs and she says, thanks so much, but no, I'm heading home. Now we see temperance choose the rational good. What we do not see is the essence of the virtue because it is interior, in the sense appetite, which follows the guidance of the intellect and will. What does this mean? Temperance experiences no interior struggle, no interior conflict. She feels no displeasure or sorrow when she refuses the next pint. With joy, she goes home. Now, setting those two aside, we get, it gets a little more interesting. What about continence and incontinence? Some of us, I would say, might identify more easily with these two figures who do not yet have perfect self-mastery that comes with temperance, but neither are they at the level of vice whereby they will whatever the passions desire. Hearing intemperances offer, the reason of both continence and incontinence says, not a good idea, but the passions of both say, give me another. Now, having all experienced this conflict at some point, even if not about alcoholic beverages, we can easily imagine the internal conversation that is going on. I'd like another beer, but I should say no. No. "Oh, I have a paper to finish. I have an early class. But oh, another beer will help me relax. It'll help me think more clearly. I shouldn't let intemperance drink alone. I'll leave after one more, etc, etc. Now, despite these similarities, on the level of knowing the good and the unruly passions, continence and incontinence are not identical. though continence lacks the ease of temperance and struggles against vehement desires. He normally manages to resist, to contain himself, tenet say. And Aristotle, therefore, he aligns it with perseverance. There's something of a determination here. Incontinence, on the other hand, will normally fail to resist the passion and is therefore often associated with softness. If both continence and incontinence experience vehement movements of passion due to disordered, sensitive appetites, but continence resist, it's clear that vehement passion alone is an insufficient cause for incontinence. If it were sufficient, then both would fail to do the good. Neither can the difference between the two lie solely in the intellect because both continence and incontinence know that the extra pint is not a true good, something of which intemperance was totally ignorant. Still, on the level of ignorance, there is a difference between continence and incontinence. Incontinence knows the rational good, I should not have another beer. But his will is inclined to sin through a passion, his ignorance is that of a particular detail of choice. In a moment of vehement passion, he's blinded to this good, and therefore he chooses to have another beer, but when the movement of the passion ends, he repents, unlike intemperance, and once again he sees clearly that what he did was wrong. If neither the intellect nor the passions are the sufficient cause of continence, where else can it be? It must be in the will, that power of the soul whose act is to choose. And so, continence, though subject to vehement desires, chooses not to follow them. Continence is struggling, but winning. While incontinence chooses to follow them although reason forbids it. His will is too weak, too soft, passions hold sway. He is struggling but losing. Now this discussion of continence and incontinence has been used in many theological debates. Today uh, Gene Porter, uh, Craig Stephen Titus and others use it in discussion of the flawed saint. Who is the flawed saint? the person who is trying to do the good, but lies somewhere along the continuum between full virtue and full vice. These two terms are also implicated in psychological and moral discourse, which speak of training the passions. Some of these in a manner reminiscent of Pavlovian conditioning, or Walter Mischel's 1960 Marshmallow Study, with preschoolers aged four and five, which tested the ability of four-year-olds and five-year-olds to delay gratification, to say no to their desires. Now, normal human development demands something of a training in the early years of childhood. As the child grows and reaches the age of reason, when we can formally speak of voluntary action, the child acquires intellectual knowledge about the good of sharing, the good of being polite, and of not fighting. The child is also trained to say no to vehement desires, to move from intemperance to continence. This training of the young child has echoes of Aristotle's pleasure and sorrow on a very primitive level. The young child has a fear of pain, discipline, if you don't stop that, or of desiring pleasure. If you're good, you will receive pleasure, pain. Regardless of the motivation, if a child repeatedly makes good choices, the will will naturally be strengthened. The child will grow in resilience, developing an ability to withstand movements of passion, moving towards continence. But the child or the adult will never achieve mature integration and perfect self-mastery by mere training. The will's containment of vehement desires, though a step towards integration, can be said to contradict, in a way, the perfection of the sensitive powers of the rational person. What do I mean by this? Unlike animals whose movement follows at once the concupiscible and irascible appetites, like the sheep that immediately runs away from the wolf, the appetites of the rational man Wait for the command of the will, which is the superior power. But self-mastery and true virtue implies more than the sense appetite, being trained to follow the external command of the will. True virtue is nothing else than a certain habitual conformity of these powers to reason. This habitual conformity is acquired by repeated like acts of proportional intensity. By these acts, the will becomes stronger, suppresses vehement passion so that it can achieve the rational good. But perfect self-mastery is only achieved when the sense appetite is perfected from within. So that it's every movement, every movement of passion is in accord with reason. Only then does one arrive at virtue at temperance whereby he can choose the good easily and with pleasure. I will close with two major conclusions summarizing both the negative and the positive elements of passion. First, the relation between passion and virtue is not merely moderating vehement desires for alcohol or other sensible goods. But since it is natural in the human person, for the passions to be ordered to reason, and since all the virtues are connected with prudence, as auriga virtutum, the charioteer of virtues, if the passions are not subject to reason, they will actually pose a threat to all virtue by hindering reason. And here I would refer to three specific ways which are all relative to passion. Number one, The passions will distract reason because we attend much to that which pleases us. Two, the passions by being contrary to reason when excess will actually go against the reason. As Aristotle says, bodily pleasures destroy the estimate of prudence. Thirdly, they will fetter reason when vehement passion is followed by bodily disturbances, as in the case of drugs and alcohol, but there are others we can also speak of. That's the negative. On the positive side, the passions are essential for reconnecting virtue. Returning to the original passage from G.K. Chesterton, he adds that the maddest virtues in the world where the religious scheme is shattered are precisely those of the intellect. Since seeking truth and justice without passion, without the heart, often leads to merciless acts of cruelty. C.S. Lewis said much the same thing in his well-known essay when he condemned a society that fabricated men without chests men and women without passion. He doesn't use mystic terms, but the sense is still there. Quote, Without the aid of trained emotions, the intellect is powerless against the animal organism. In battle, it is not syllogisms, logical arguments, that will keep the reluctant nerves and muscles to their post in the third hour of the bombardment the head rules the belly through the chest. The head rules the belly through the chest. The chest, the seat of magnanimity, great souledness. The seat of emotions organized, he says, by trained habit into stable sentiments. This chest magnanimity sentiment, he continues, are indispensable liaison officers between cerebral man and visceral man. He adds, since the human being by his intellect is mere spirit, and by his appetite mere animal, we can conclude that it may even be said that it is by this middle element, by virtuous passion, that man is man. Thank you.